This is The Good Stuff. Let's get to know those who are doing the good stuff in our community. We'll chat with everyone from small business owners to local officials. Join us as we go around town to find the hidden gems. This is your host, Andy Tomlinson. Welcome to the Good Stuff Podcast. Well, welcome to the Good Stuff Podcast. Uh, I'm here, and this is a special guest, Ed Kunzelman, the founder of Petland, uh, downtown, jeez, uh, I don't even know what you, ambassador, uh, monopoly owner, <laughs> um, just so many things about Ed that uh, uh, you can introduce him as. Uh, one biggest thing is, you know, the, uh, the founder of Petland. And uh, he has been gracious enough to uh, allow me to come into his house and do a podcast. So this is my first remote setting, and I don't think it's going to be my last because it's kind of nice. So welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming, and thanks for allowing me. And uh, it's been a long time we've been trying to get this together, but time has been uh, not on our side. Um. So Ed, how did you uh, how'd you get in the pet business? Uh, I was a tropical fish hobbyist. I worked lots of jobs as a youngster. I uh, was always trying to figure out how to earn some money. Yeah, uh, paper out stores. Uh, I visited a lot of pet stores and uh, some tropical fish specialty stores, and. Uh, I started uh, raising tropical fish and selling them from my house, much much to my father's chagrin. (laughs) Um, And then finally, I actually, one of my customers there uh, suggested we open a storefront, and we did on uh, East Water Street. Okay. Just about where there used to be a hotel that has been torn down. All right, so that now that's Franklin Clinic, is that right? Or I think it's something else now. No, no, it's an empty lot right now. Oh, I see. I know well, what you're now. Let's hope it might be something, something very else. interesting yeah. someday. And so, uh, was that your first uh, venture into build, buildings, or did you own it, or you just rented it? No, no, I just rented it. I was uh, fifteen, or barely fifteen. Wow. Um, and Archie Morrow who was a downtown building owner and had a big furniture store on the corner where the men's shop has been recently. Yeah. Uh, rented it to me, surprisingly. At 15? Yes. Holy cow. Uh-huh. Um, so then um, the, after, um, I don't know, less than a year's operation, the partner uh, got a better job. He was a, an adult. And, he, and he's from Chillicothe. And when he was here at the time, I think maybe he originally came from Portsmouth, and he got an offer to take another job. And uh, so he was leaving, and my father wouldn't let me buy out his side because he wanted me to go to college. Sure. (laughs) And uh, so we closed. That was called the Aqua Shop. But I worked in a pet store in that same building uh, for Mr. Marsh. not the not the architect not the architect but his uncle who had some kind of a government role i think in the county or city and uh i also before that worked at the willow kennel which was uh on bridge street before bridge street had shopping centers it actually coincidentally is almost exactly in front of where the pet land is now but it was up on the street and, of course, that land falls off in the back and was farmland. Yeah. But the back of the Willow Kennel, uh, on this, what would be, look like the basement, opened onto the outside. And it had a boarding kennel, and he raised boxers, and he had a full-line pet store. And so... I rode that, my bike out there. I mean, I can understand at 15 why, why your partner was like, eh, maybe i try something else. Sure. But I'm sure he's kicking himself... I I doubt it. It was a long time ago. Uh, Plus, everything wasn't rosy. No, no, I'm sure. For a long time. Um, 
so and you did i think weren't you a teacher beforehand i was i yeah. was uh i had a dual major in english and history history was my real passion yeah it was a minor until i found out that it took so many to be a minor just a little bit more gave you a dual major in english don't be um so and i was in the college of education i came back to teach and uh I taught first in Clarksburg. That was the, I don't think they called it the Adidas system. Maybe they did, but that was a junior high school. I taught seventh and eighth grade English. And then I came into the Chillicothe system wanting to teach history. And uh, it was the time when they had just, uh, the state had just mandated that um, school systems had special education programs for an IQ range of folks that were then termed educable, mentally mm -hmm. retarded. I did, oh. never liked that name. Yeah. But um, so there was this uh, range of IQ. Had lots of kids were in a range where they were sitting in regular classes and it wasn't for them. And uh, Nick Alexander was the head of education. And he asked me if I would uh, take that on. And we had to have, I think we had to have 11 units in the Chillicothe system. No one was trained. There was no such training program. It's, all it's, a, it's a very good specialty now. And I have met lots of people that have done that and do that now. But it didn't exist. So we had to kind of create it. Yeah. And then I, at the high school, um, first, I had to work a summer trying to figure out how, um, who would be qualified and what grade levels. And I kept going through the, the IQ records and there were all these 51, 52, 53, 51, 52, 53. And I found the, the school psychologist that did that and said, what's this all about? And he said, I had to score them at least 50 or they'd have nowhere to go because we didn't have a pioneer school. We didn't have any other provisions. Wow. So uh, there was an, an inordinate number of people that needed this kind of thing. And at that time, they had a, there was a program called DECA, which was uh, people that wanted to be in retail, I think. And they got to leave school uh, at noon as seniors. And there was another program I think was for office workers that was similar. So they thought that might be right for this. I tried it and it wasn't enough. So I had an open book. There was no guideline. So we set that up for juniors and had seniors work full-time jobs and we set up night classes. And uh, I remember that when I left, I had 83 children, people, uh, gainfully employed in real jobs, not made-up jobs. And uh, we had recruited other teachers, and the program kind of took off. And I, I, I was proud of that work. I liked that. Well, you were, you were a pioneer back then, and you still are. I mean, you... But I never got to teach history. <laughs> but, but, but your vision of, of making what, it, what is now, uh, you had that, and they, they looked for you to, to do that. Um, and, and so how did you get into the pet business then? So you well, all these things happened to me uh, simultaneously, I guess. Um, the summer in 1967, there were whatever last pet stores there were had closed. And in the summer, I was teaching school, summertime. I, uh, I'd take a little drink. Uh, I rented a building downtown. Um, it, uh, was, um, nickel hamburger place, um, right next to JC Penney's at the time. Now it's the city building. Okay. And now it's, what, what now is it? it's Steiner speakeasy. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great little business in there and she's a great lady. Yeah. Um, so that was the first pet land. And then from there you, you expanded and well, I mean, so when you when you when you got out of education and started another pet land store or, or pet store, what did I your stayed parents... in education? This was all happening at the same time. Okay, 
I was teaching and did this in the summer, and uh, I had a partner who was also a teacher. I kind of talked him into the idea, and uh, he didn't like teaching as much as I did, so he quit first. And uh, and next summer we opened another store, what, on and on. What What did your parents think when you said, oh, "I'm going to get out of education after I went to school uh, for all this"? My, my parents were gone by then. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, in my senior year, they, my dad was transferred and they moved to uh, the Southeast. And um, I was kind of on my own. I, I was kind of anyway, yeah. because my father traveled all the time. And uh, I was the oldest uh, child. And I was there at uh, when we had the least money. I, sure. <laughs> no car. I pulled a wagon through the alley to the old Kroger's that was on Main Street to bring the groceries home. Uh, so it was, uh, I always had an urge to work yeah. and to earn money. Uh, so it, it just came natural and I was a busy person. And still are. Yes. That never ended. Yeah. <laughs> You're still, every day I talk to you, uh, I'm working on this and this and this. <laughs> I, I, I'll get back to you. Which is great. You you always have a project. You've always been busy, and and so now going back to Petland, you've had how many stores now? Uh, there are um, currently about about two hundred and forty stores, uh, just over a hundred in the United States, and then another hundred and forty in other countries. Incredible. That's that's amazing that it just started on uh, well that. Water Street, then went to Paint Street, and now it's an international business, and now you employ several people, and uh, that's an awesome story. And uh, now it has brought your, uh, I guess Petland has brought you to your passion or, or your like of downtown Chillicothe. Uh, and how did when did that start? When did that love of uh, buildings and um, just making Chillicothe better. When did that occur? Well, that's so long ago, I don't know that people are going to understand some of the things that I would explain, but uh, I lived on Water Street, and um, that was my paper route. And um, I had uh, 11 bars on my paper route. On Water. Sure, yeah, Water Street was uh, an interesting place. I've heard that. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. Um, ladies didn't walk down Water Street. And it was narrow for a long time. Before, um, somewhere in the mid-50s, uh, there was still the, the um, theater that had been built on the old flood, uh, the old canal. Uh, so that it was a very narrow street. And uh, they, opened, they tore that down and then other buildings had made the wide Water Street. In the fifth, somewhere in the late fifties, I, I think I was maybe the first person to ride his bike out on the, the new deal. wide water street. And it's wide now. It's, yeah, it's big. Well, after the town burnt down in eighteen fifty-three, yeah, they moved those two blocks back. They wouldn't let them rebuild without moving back fifteen feet. So those all those buildings on uh, the two blocks of Water Street are set back. From where they originally were. Didn't know that. Um, back then, too, there was standard uh, ele elevator. Yes. And pigeons. Oh, it was everywhere. bad. I mean, I remember that one. I don't remember mm. the. Of course, the railroad tracks crossed at the head of the park, the entrance to the park. You you really bounced to go into the park from Paint Street. There were at least three tracks, and they weren't all at the same level. Yeah, uh, they used that to to head out uh, so they could back into a uh, track uh, and pick up grain at the standard elevator. Yeah. yeah, I remember that very well. So going on Water Street, so you were was that your first purchase of a downtown building? No, uh, the first purchase was the building where Ivy's is right now. Okay, now that looks like four storefronts, but it's actually two buildings built exactly alike at the same time. And I, it was only the corner building. And that whole north block of Water Street was pretty abandoned. Yeah. 
nothing had been in there for a long time except, of course, the pigeons. Yeah. What year was that? Do you remember? What's that? What year were, when you bought that building? I'd be guessing. Um, it's not my best thing to remember um, exactly how long ago. It's been at least 40 years. Wow. And it was, um, it was as I say, it was totally empty. And uh, Joe Keir, who was a terrific guy, um, owned it. He was an attorney downtown, yeah. did a lot of real estate work. And uh, he was someone that knew my father. My father always told me that was the honest, most honest man he knew. And, and somehow he owned that building and didn't know what to do with it. So he sold it. And I didn't have any money. So he sold it to me on a land contract. And I figured out how to clean up the downstairs and get a couple of stores in there. Yeah. And then start trying to get the pigeons and the, and the mess out of the upper floors. And so what was the first? You just um, rented the, the bottom half to retail and then mm -hmm. top half to uh, apartments. Mm -hmm. And you started from there. Well, there weren't apartments for a while because it, it, it was not in a condition that you could. You had to redo everything. Yeah. Yeah. They had different rules back then, or or no rules. Well, I don't think they did. They have rules. <laughs> yeah, um, everything I bought uh, didn't have uh, anything to code. Yeah, it's still to this day though. <laughs> yeah, if you get one that hasn't been redone, yeah, hasn't been reworked, it's uh, it's dangerous. There are buildings that uh, we've redone some. You know, I'm involved in some partnerships as well. Not things I do all by myself, but. Uh, with uh, some wonderful partners, uh, we acquired some additional buildings. And uh, some of them, you know where Smith's Jewelry is now? Yeah. Um, I remember that as Marsh Shoes when downtown was booming. And, you know, it was my paper out. The downtown was a busy place. And um, I, I knew the merchants. I knew all the bar owners. Um, Garen Barris's uh, grandfather had the Ponderosa. Yeah. And uh, he was a great guy. I, I never had any trouble with any of the bars. Um, they paid on time. They yes. The only people that I had trouble getting my money from was the Rescue Mission. Um, that had one of those outside megaphones to try to get all the people that were drinking too much. <laughs> and they come they into their little church on... And they right, wouldn't, at, right amidst the bars. They wouldn't pay you. No. <laughs> wow. Um, going back to to the buildings that you buy and the, the codes, and it, it, there's probably several that you bought that almost fell down or, or close yes, to. Yes, uh, uh, the, the streetscape project, and I was a big advocate of that. I helped talk people into green because the property owners paid huge amounts on their tax bill yeah. for 20 years or 15 years, a long time. And, um, and it was executed, it was finally got executed in the winter and it was not done as well as it should have been done. And uh, of course there were uh, opening places under the sidewalks where the early stores received their goods. Yeah. Or coal. There were uh, openings, and those got filled in, but they got filled in with uh, not a sturdy enough material. It was supposed to be a, a light mix concrete was how it was described, and that you could shovel it out. Well, they held up the, the entrances to the basement to that space with uh, plywood and, and, and pried it up with a two-before, which eventually gave way, and what was supposed to be light mixed concrete ended up being mostly sand and spilled into the basement. So, at that point, there was nothing holding up the sidewalk. Uh, it was really some frustrating things happened. And, of course, not just things like that that happened in the city, but building owners that didn't do some of the things that were necessary to it's a wonder there haven't been more problems. <laughs> but uh, with having that, it's changed our, our downtown. And at the time, it was probably not a very popular uh, subject and, uh, or project. Uh, 
and you spearheaded with other people. Uh, thank goodness you did, because now it looks great, and, and now our downtown is... But it's long overdue to uh, redo Re- yeah. of, uh, of that whole idea of a streetscape. And, and the understanding of how uh, cores of cities, downtowns ought to be, uh, has gone through uh, some terrible times. Uh, right when um, it was difficult and shopping center booms were coming along, they made some terrible mistakes. And and now the people that uh, study that, and we've had, I don't know, seven or eight of these kinds of, uh, of experts come in and tell you how it should be, things about walkable city and, and how you do this. And one-way streets are just the worst thing. And, so, and you just have a battle trying to correct old mistakes. Sure. The, the one-way streets we have are um, a result of somebody's idea. And I'll tell you exactly when that was because it was the very year that I opened that first Petland store. And somebody decided that we should have a mall in front of the courthouse. And they uh, put up uh, concrete block squares and planted trees and bushes in it. And then they made a one-way system. And the one-way system included Walnut Street heading south and Mulberry Street heading north and um, Second Street being one way and Fourth and Fifth Street being one way. So what they created, and of course you couldn't drive down Paint Street because there was a, so they created a way to drive around the downtown, but made it almost impossible to get into the downtown. And that really uh, stimulated a lot of people moving out. And that was people that were trying to do the right thing. Sure. They just didn't have an understanding about how it really should work. But now Second Street's changing at some point. Finally, finally, finally. People have been begging for that. And and, uh, my partners and I have a number of investments there. Um, uh, Ben Daughters at the Poor House. Um, um, It'll make a big difference if if it's done properly. When my office was on Second Street, I mean, it was every day I'd see two, three people go the other wrong way. Yeah. And then it's not only that, it's it's when, you know, people come and visit our city and try to explain how to get to point A to point B with that, with these one-way streets is confusing. That's and, the trouble. Yeah. And, and the trouble is that for local residents, we all know where to go. Yeah. We know what alley to cut through and how we, to do this and how to do that. But the fact of the matter is... It puts more traffic on the street because right. you have to go all these odd places to get where you want to go. Yeah. And for a visitor from out of town, it makes no sense. None. And, and especially if we uh, get busier and have the designation, I think uh, we need to make these changes before it happens. We have a, we have a lot to do. We, we have some spark and some good news and things happening in, in the, everything that's happening in the economy. Um, and COVID, it, all those things are kind of making uh, towns like Chillicothe um, having a bigger opportunity than ever to have people come home, relocate, right. uh, live in a smaller community if it has the amenity and the feel of a place you want to live. So the two committees that have, there must have been, I, I must have been on or around seven or eight times over the last 10 years on a wayfinding and a beautification committee. And we have great plans, several different versions, and what we lack is execution. Yeah. So the entrances to the city are, are, you don't realize it because you know where you're going and you're not looking around. And it's very difficult even to know where you should go. And it's certainly not attractive. And it, it's not expensive to make it right. And, and you do have some ideas on, on how to change that, at least one of them. Um, and, and hopefully we can uh, have another, another meeting. Uh, so you did a meeting, I don't know, five, six years ago uh, that my wife attended. And I don't even remember what the meeting was. I think it was just you were trying to spur excitement for downtown. And uh, I, she uh, left that meeting and, and took away the idea that 
uh, well, we need a, you know, a museum, a children's museum for downtown. And that's where that kind of started. So now uh, uh, people are caught up in the downtown and what it can be. Yeah. We, we've reached that tipping point where lots of people, uh, I, because between the partnerships and some things I have myself, uh, I get lots of calls, people looking to open a business. Yeah. It's like uh, some of them are not fully thought out ideas, but you quickly get the sense that everybody wants to be a part of the downtown. So the partnership that you're in yeah. uh, at the other end of the street is just like the most welcome thing in the whole world because you're doing the same thing starting in that end in the corner. And uh, now we've got somebody that bought the old Warner Hotel. Yeah. And the union block kind of in the middle. Yeah. Um, of course, there's always going to be the parking issue. And, uh, of course, we never should have built a jail in the middle of the downtown and have the whole side of one block with nothing interesting to do and hundreds of workers who have no special place to park. Uh, the, that original plan uh, for the joint law enforcement complex included a parking garage. That's the one place where a parking garage makes sense because it's not looking for shoppers to go somewhere else and park and walk out of a building, but it would take the, the people that work in the county and the city law and put them in a place and and that would free up the, the streets. It, but, the, but there is parking. I mean, I don't ever have a, you just have to walk a little bit. Now, I did, uh, I just saw a, uh, an email come across from, uh, I think, Strong Towns, um, where they were, a city had changed their parking situation by doing valet. Uh, so it was an interesting take on it. I think the city re received some, uh, some money from either bed tax or some kind of some kind of tax, and they tried it out, and it's been very successful. It's only on the weekends, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. But I could see that maybe working in the future instead of, you know, and that that cost was fifty thousand to to, to seventy five thousand compared to a million dollar uh, parking garage that makes no sense. Um, well, it's. You're right. There are lots of solutions yeah. and people willing to walk because there's something worth walking to. And the walking becomes fraud. You see your friends on the street. Yeah. That's the whole idea of walking around downtown. Well, we have a, a built-in Easton, really. Exactly. Well, that's why they build these Eastons around the country Yeah. as some of these towns. I, I remember a town in uh, a, a, a suburb of Houston that built out so quickly that they didn't have uh, amenities. They didn't, and, and eventually they were incorporated. They had no town hall, and they built an Easton-like place to be the center of their town because they didn't have a downtown. So um, I took pictures of it, and I brought them back here and showed people. This is, this is 12, 15 years ago. And I took pictures said, what do you think this is? And they say, Chillicothe. I said, no, that's a brand new downtown that somebody built to look just like Chillicothe. And the lawyers and the dentists are upstairs and their stores on the, you know, you do a, it's it, one of the hardest things about a downtown, you have all the various building owners. It's the tipping point came when more people bought buildings that wanted to try to do something progressive. So, um, the shopping centers work because they they do a thing called tenant mix. The idea is you open the right thing next to the right thing, and they all help one another. So it's nice to have a ice cream shop and a bakery and three restaurants and two gift stores and and a giant wonderful candy store uh, and a children's museum and the and the Paper City coffee, and uh, that, that you know, all of a sudden you have things to walk to, and the more that fills in, the better for everybody. But you have to be selective. You can't uh, put the wrong things in the right place. Sure. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, shopping malls uh, get to control uh, everything, where the downtowns do not because you can't own every building. And uh, Plus, you have to rely on a government 
to do the things that the owner of a shopping center would, or is at least supposed to do. Yeah. So uh, things like lighting and streetscape and trees and all kinds of things. Um, so when you travel, uh, or you have in the past a lot. I travel. Yeah. I, except still- for the last year i've had my issues in covid yeah. together that have kind of blanked out two years for me yes but prior to that i i've been nearly everywhere in depth and and so do you get ideas from those cities to try to bring back and mimic uh for chillicothe bring the best of course yeah of course yeah. Uh, uh, um you know preservation wasn't even a thing here when you go to europe and, and you see you know, little village in southern Germany that uh, is still a walled city and they preserved the whole thing. You can't believe you think you've gone back in time and you walk in the door and it's air conditioning and so yeah. it's really cool in there. But uh, their idea of preserving something was that took a little while to catch on. There was this horrible period of architecture in the 40s and early 50s. Now, I have to say, I thought the cars and music and was perfect in the 50s <laughs> and 60s, but the architecture was terrible. They would take a, a historic a brick or stone building and put pink vertical siding on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, uh, it was horrible. Um, so, a lot of that happened. A lot of things happened that came in phases. And once you start digging back into how the buildings were in the first place, you discover all kinds of things. I, that uh, so the, you were talking about a building that has the the granite on the pink granite on the. Well, we have one of those. Yeah, <laughs> but we couldn't do anything about it because they chiseled into the brick. Yeah, so I know. You, you can't. I know. Uh, I, I understand. Yeah. Sometimes it's it's almost impossible. Where uh, where the uh, downtown Hibachi is, hometown Hibachi. Yeah. Um. That corner yeah. has stone columns, and they have an ornate top and an ornate about halfway down. And somebody came along in the 40s and decided they wanted to put up some flat boards, so they chipped all that off, and uh, we restored them. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know it could be done. It happens to be the same mason that I have now working on uh, the corner where the men's shop is. Yeah, so that that brings me to the other. Uh, what is the Whistler Concert Hall? I, I mean, I, I know it was an old concert hall, but a lot of people think it's you're, you're building a new concert hall. Um, well, I don't have to. There's a concert hall there. Yeah. Um, it was uh, the town was. Uh, of course, this is the rebuild after the fire. Fire was eighteen fifty-two or three, and uh, so. Uh, we, the town was nearly half German immigrant then. Um, and um, there were a couple of German brewers. One of them was Whistler, uh, uh, Reinhardt Whistler and his brother. And uh, he bought the two bu- the, what looks like two buildings on the corner where the men's shop was. And Bob's Spittering, right? Uh, well, then he built the building. Uh, where Bob's Spoodery was that contains the concert hall upstairs. Okay. He built it to have the concert hall for his German singing society, which was a very big thing. All the Cincinnati, Columbus, all the towns that had German populations had these singing societies, and they actually competed with one another. You know, back then, uh, social life for man uh, centered around some kind of lodge. Right. And um, now these Germans that were in the singing society, that was a, and I have the, the I have some myself and the, and the uh, historical society has some, like a fraternity picture of the pictures of the people through the years that were in the singing society. You'd recognize a lot of names. names sure. And uh, so, uh, that was a that was a big deal. It, they were a major part of the centennial celebration. There's a great little book. It's a small book that was the book put out for the hundred years celebration, eighteen ninety six, 
from the 1796 founding. Wow. And the, that singing society was a major part of the entertainment that was going on then. Um, so what are your plans for that? Uh, besides making it uh, last another 100, 200 years with the, the brickwork that you're doing, and thank you for doing that because that's, uh, that's what the Carlisle did. And I think that's probably how you found that guy. And maybe, I don't know. Um, no, I've known, I've, I've known of him since he did a project for us prior to the, and he did part of the work at uh, Carlisle. Yeah. But our, uh, the work that we're doing there on the brick is, uh, it's the absolute best you can do. Yeah. Uh, and his contract, it spells out each step and each thing he's doing. And it kind of ends with, uh, when completed, the building will look exactly as it looked when it was first built. Wow. So, uh, thankfully, nobody ever sandblasted it. Yeah. It was actually painted one time. It was painted white. And uh, someone did a good job of chemically taking the paint off. And uh, actually, I believe Franklin Conaway did that. And uh, you're putting new windows in? Uh, we're absolutely, no, we're absolutely restoring the windows. That's the second thing that is, um, uh, it's really expensive. <laughs> to, but, to restore them. But it's expensive to do it wrong as yeah. well. Yeah. So this, this uh, Kohi preservation out of a little town called Habersville near Cincinnati, Robert Brookover, he is amazing. Uh, I found him because my stepson found him to do the windows on the uh, Fifth Street bed and breakfast they're building. Yeah. Um, so I saw the quality of that, and it's just there was no other way to go. Yeah. And and it's not like we have done that. On, you know, that's cost prohibitive in most places. But thankfully, I think this building is iconic enough. It It is on the historic register on its own merits and has been for a long time. And, of course, it's also in a historic district that's on the National Register. So right. it's like double effective. And then its history of being this German singing society, uh, the downstairs um, for, for all of it uh, was um, a single uh, restaurant, saloon, and bowling alley by Mr. Kirkenslager. <laughs> and on the third floor, we have a picture from 18... 93 and uh there was a setup picture to get a great picture and there's a man leaning out um, one of the top windows of the third floor and that's balsheimer from who was printing the german newspaper unzerzeit <laughs> wow uh so you just can't be a more german, german yeah building building um i think uh the little alley behind there we have a dream someday of uh, uh, pavers in that alley and uh, a little uh, uh, metal curved entrance and call it Printer's Alley uh, because that paper was printed in there somewhere. <laughs> and um, so then came World War One, and it was uh, evil to be a German. People need to understand that the Germans weren't evil in the way they were evil at World War II. It wasn't Hitler. It was armies that were fighting because of alliances as a result of a Serbian that assassinated the Archduke Ferdinand. It, it, was, it was not the same kind of evil, but when we finally entered that terrible thing that was going on for years, uh, President Wilson had to kind of talk people into because we were up we kind of standoffish mm -hmm. as americans yeah and uh so I, they had a publicist that made a job of making the germans kind of evil and uh so a lot of germans changed their names you know schmidt to smith and it was uh it was kind of a, a thing that shouldn't have been done it's as bad as what they did to the japanese in world war ii yeah but um uh, so we had the Camp Sherman, and the concert hall closed, and they used the whole upstairs for the uh, officers' club for Camp Sherman. 
So it had a whole nother uh, generation of use. In history? Yeah. Um, what do you think it's going to be after you do this uh, renovation? Do you have any, or can you say? Or Well, I, I, you know, I don't have any secrets. I have, um, we have, we helped the wonderful people that had the bed shop move, relocate down Water Street uh, because we have to empty it out. And Bob had retired from the bootery. Yeah. So uh, we can't fill those spaces. We have too much work to do. Uh, things that have to be done on the first floor, which, you know, those fronts were altered like other ones. The upstairs wasn't. What we're fixing right now is the second and third floors. Yeah. And structural problems. There's a, there's a two-story add-on on the Water Street side in the back that was added on and is uh, in deplorable shape. We have to practically tear it down and rebuild it. Uh, um, so that's what's underway right now, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to be upset because we have a screened off a, a big piece, and it's even going to get worse for another month. It's okay. It's progress. I hope so. Yeah. I hope people see it. that because it's going to be an iconic uh, structure. Yeah. And the idea is to um, build the upstairs uh, so it will uh, support a, a great restaurant. I do not have a great restaurant. But I kind of operate on that. If you build it, uh, they, they will, will come. come. Like Field of Dreams. Uh, some, like something. Yeah. And uh, then we'll see uh, how we uh, allocate the downstairs space to four really nice retail operations. I can't wait to see it. And to have that, uh, a, a meal at that new restaurant overlooking the park. Well, not on that side, I guess. Yeah, it does. Okay. You, 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 Welcome to come up sometime. Yeah. Right now, it's a little active in there. Oh, I'm sure. And and even dangerous. There's a when it was a furniture store, oddly owned by Archie Morrow, who's the guy that rented me the little space to have a pet store or fish store. Um, he built um, a freight elevator on the Water Street side. People that have gone by know that there are bricked up windows where the freight elevator was. Oh, okay. And I was wondering it, what it has to come out. And as it comes out, um, all the floor joists that used to run all across the building have to be replaced. Uh, I could list a lot of things that make you feel bad for me, but <laughs> there's a lot to do in that project. We had the same thing we had to do above Paper City. Every every floor joist, we, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's It was something the architect said that, too much distance, you need to, uh, yeah, just we all know that that's just more money. But without uh, your work in downtown, we people wouldn't be as excited as as they are about it because it's everyone's excited. Well, I have a lot of friends, uh, you know, that are kind of watching it day to day, and we had to take some pieces off the front because the. Uh, um, some of the ornamental things had to come off so that we could work underneath and put them, restore them, and put it back on in a better way. Yeah. Or actually, this this that work on the outside, second and third floors, it, it will last another 150 years. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, it's going to be beautiful. Uh, just going back to that Whistler, I think it's funny when people say, "Oh, he's he's putting a concert hall." <laughs> Well, there's a concert hall there. I know, but and it, it was the Whistler Concert Hall. But and uh, if we we get it all built and maybe and, uh, and I don't have a restaurant yet, maybe we'll have a concert. <laughs> um, so, listeners, we're in his uh, living room. There's a storm that's approached. We have not turned on any lights. I can barely see these notes that I've, I've written. But no, no. But thank you. Uh, you don't have to because Ed. Ed is, you just ask him one question and I don't, I can't even see my questions anymore and he can keep, go on and, and I love it. Sorry about that. No, it's, it's one, as a, as a pod, as a podcast host, it's wonderful to, to have someone interview, uh, that can, we can keep on going. Um, so what, uh, so as these people that are coming in and, and trying to invest, what, what piece of advice would you give? Uh, someone that is thinking about investing in downtown. 
Well, I don't know what level you mean. I, I encourage people to buy buildings if they can, yeah. uh, and knowing, uh, understanding what they're buying. Mm -hmm. It's not the price you pay for it. It's what you end up finding out you have to do to make it right. And uh, so a lot of that's already happened. Uh, but the people that want to open a little business, uh, lots and lots of them. I, I had uh, two calls today while I was down there talking to the stonemason um, and uh, explaining to the city that we're going to have to make even a wider space for a while of the big fence. Um, uh, and I had two calls, somebody that wants to know about a building and they're thinking about opening this and that. And um, Do you kind of guide them on what to do and where to go? I, I have the, it's not that I'm so wise, it's that I have been in a business for 52 years yes, and I've been nearly out of business six or seven times in that period of time and uh, have um, learned, you know, I was an English and history major. Maybe I should have uh, thought about uh, business administration. Um, I solved that, though, because the man that runs Petland now uh, is totally qualified and we have a wonderful team there. I'm still active. Uh, uh, I was at a training session yesterday. Uh, I meet all the new people that come in that want to franchise. I pay a lot of attention to our overseas partners. Um, but there's a great team down there, so I really don't. I, I'm Nothing is negative, negative happens when I'm not there. Maybe it happens when I am there. But you're still uh, guiding. Well... At a, at a very light level, yeah. at a very light level. But uh, all, things are changing in business all the time. So it's an, it's an exciting and interesting place where we're all frustrated because we can't attend to our overseas activities. We're so anxious to get back to that. And, and that's, that's a place where I participate and can be helpful. Sure. Uh, so um, I, I try to only do things that are where I can handle, add a little something and, and not get in the way because really the people that run it are, have been magnificent. And I mean lots of departments. More happens at Petland than people know. There are distribution issues at a factory that builds fixtures and all kinds of things are going on. Um, it's an exciting place. It is. Oh, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's gigantic too. Yeah. It's, if you'd ever been by and just looked at it thinking that is a gigantic building, but go inside. Wow. And the way that, uh, they welcome you. And, uh, I think if you go in the lobby, they ask you for, uh, would you like a water? Would you, it, they, they cater to your needs for sure. And that's, 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 yeah, that's, uh, the most important Thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my father was, as I said before, was a traveling salesman. So we've always had a rule. I don't care who comes in there. They're going to be treated royally. Yeah. And, and people tend to uh, not treat salespeople very well. They know that they, they have to cater to them. Uh, uh, that, that they, the salesperson has to cater to the company. And you've heard stories about what it's like to try to sell something to Walmart and how you're treated and yeah. all those kinds of things. So uh, I, from the very beginning, uh, we're taking care of our guests. Uh, and as someone that has had that happen and, and walked into Petland, uh, it's very welcoming. And it's almost bizarre. You're like, uh, they're asking me for water, <laughs> <laughs> which it normally doesn't happen. Uh, what good timing in the puppy or the dog came in and <laughs> talking about Petland. He, he's interested. <laughs> he is interested. What's, what's the name of this dog? That's Dante. Dante. Great dog. So uh, Weimarimer. So uh, I always ask uh, three questions. Uh, what's your favorite? Well, three questions, but they're, they're long questions. So it's not just one. Uh, what's your favorite breakfast, lunch, and dinner spot? Um, <laughs> I'm a night owl, um, so um, I joke that I always get up before breakfast. 
So you probably don't have breakfast. <laughs> and, and, and these don't have to be in Chilcati. The reason I ask these questions is- I love all day breakfast places. All day. And I like breakfast for lunch or breakfast for dinner sometimes. Sure. I like breakfast food. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I don't know, it's, uh, it's hard, very seldom, I mean, look at me, you wouldn't believe it, but, but uh, two meals a day. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've been to some of the best restaurants in the world and entertained by some of the greatest people in the world. So... Um, you ask me my favorite restaurants and, yeah. you know, four or five of them are in Montreal. Great. Uh, a couple in Paris. Uh, I was treated so royally in uh, Japan. I had a, a two long stays there and on one of them, uh, what I was young and uh, what I considered an elderly gentleman uh, hosted me and every night he took me to the famous this kind of restaurant and the famous that kind of restaurant. So I, I and and I have traveled all over the United States. You know, we have stores in all kinds of places, and uh, so uh, I, I can. It's hard to choose. Of, yeah, uh, and some of them are like um, more like uh, roadie places. Yeah, uh, there's a chicken dinner place in in uh, Kansas City called Stroud's. And there's no menu. You just sit down and they bring you a chicken dinner. I like that. And uh, so that was one of those always at, uh, uh, in California at Knott's Berry Farm, which is a thing I liked as, good, as well as Disney almost uh, as a child. And I had, I had family in California and I was born in California. So uh, I had a second home out there. So it's hard to think of a place. One of my all-time favorite restaurants is on Clearwater Beach. There are actually two for a, a really nice restaurant. There's a place there called Heilman's Beachcomber, and I know I've been going that for 45 years. Wow. And um, never, ever had anything that wasn't perfect over that kind of time frame. You don't expect that out of restaurants. Yeah. Only they don't last that long. And then there's a little open-air place called Frenchie's. I have on that shirt right now, by the way. Uh, Frenchie's uh, uh, is a grilled grouper burger and a pitcher of sangria. Wonderful. Uh, so, there are special places. If I was going to try to go someplace real close around here, I would name the Ocean Club at Easton. Yeah. Upstairs? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's first rate. I, yeah. I take... You know, sometimes guests arrive on the um, at the airport, and uh, it's time for dinner. It, we go there, and uh, the seafood, especially Asian people, yeah. uh, really get a kick out of that place. Well, uh, going back to Chokati, though, you know, you, when you bring them in town, you only had one or two restaurants. Now we're, we've got more to choose from. Thank goodness. Yes, uh, and we need more. You're right, and it, it does. That's not a, a, an attack on the ones that are there. No. I am so happy to have our kitchen. And, and you have to be understanding of what they go through with COVID. Yeah. Um, so, awesome. it, 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 you know, if people say, well, why aren't they open on this day or that day? Well, just thank the Lord that they're there and they're sticking it out. Yeah. And it'll be back to normal at some point. It's hard, hard to keep some of the help in restaurants. Yeah. And, and uh, Ben Daughters at the poorhouse. Uh, uh, it's just great, and the hibachi on the quarter—that's uh, that's better food than most people realize. Yeah. They're busy all the time. They do huge carryout business, and but the food, the quality of the food is excellent. It is uh, so, and and they—I I saw them out at the fair, so they have a uh, some kind of booth out there, and they were oh, yeah. going to town. They're they're hardworking people. Yeah. And they deserve everything they get. We have a plan to open a sushi bar in the basement. Wonderful. There. That was at one time a tavern. Yeah. A long time ago. Um, so you answered my other question. You are a night owl. Uh, you're, I'm sure at one point you were an early riser. It might be both. Um, I am when I need to be. Right. Right. I love mornings, but I like to be up morning and think a little bit and mm. do some phone calls and yeah. drink some coffee and relax. Right. Because by the time I get finished at night, there's no relaxing time left. Sure. Uh, my last question. 
Uh, what what book are you currently reading, or what book would you like to share? Oh, that's a rabbit hole. I, I, I know. I, I, I always have two books out somewhere, and even if, I, if I'm at my busiest, I find a way to read a few pages uh, just to keep my hand in. And, of course, I have business journals from several different kinds of businesses. Sure. And I, and, uh, I take the Wall Street Journal, and I, I take the Sunday New York Times um, because I'm interested in world reporting. Yeah. Uh, I, I've really gotten away from uh, cable TV news. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I, I frequently turn on BBC because I get, they have a world news report that hits about the right time for me, and mm-hmm. I, I want to know what's going on. Sure. And uh, Well, because you're used to when you're traveling overseas, it's about everything, not just where you're at. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I'll give you an example about how reporting is different. Mm-hmm. Not that they, uh, they don't have their silly things as well. Right. But um, when I was the first time in Japan, uh, was, and had a, my friend from Petland Canada was with me, and they wanted to get every ounce of our time so there'd be a very early pickup in the morning and um, come out of the door and the paper land there, the Japan Times. Mm-hmm. And it, I couldn't believe it. Uh, the, most, the biggest headline was what was most important in the world. Right. Instead of what was happening in Hollywood or stars. or It was the important news of the world. Right, not just the and US. I, you know it was a shock because you're not used to yeah. seeing it that way, and uh, so I, I try to stay up. I, I uh, uh, cut out sections if something I strikes me that I want to read, I pull it out because you can't just let the paper stack up forever. Right. So I pull some out for a time when I hope I can get to them. There are some here now, um, and there was one that you. Uh, they were talking about uh, Paper City. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it. I could. Uh, it was a whole page and had uh, photographs of uh, of Ash Cave, and um, it was a that was a happy day. Yeah, uh, but uh, I read books, and um, if I was going to recommend something to people, because I I read some hard history. Um, you know, Shelby Foote wrote a thing called The Civil War, three volumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the most amazing. There are so many books on the Civil War, and, and I, it's a subject I know probably too much about and not enough about everything else. But uh, it's just an amazing, amazing uh, book and or set of books. And now there's a, uh, an American writing about the American involvement in Europe of World War II, a three-volume set. His name is uh, Rick Atkinson, I think, and uh, it's um, it's uh, one of them's the dawn, and it, it, it's following Americans' activity in Europe, not Japan. Right. It's not everything, but it's intense, and it's. Um, the dawn is as unprepared as we were and some of the things that happened early on. And then the middle one is a more, uh, it covers all of the Italian campaign, which is where my father was. And so I read that, I read the middle first. <laughs> and I'm not finished with the last um, ending uh, book. So that's still there. And then uh, what I tend to do is follow great authors. Um, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote the a book that uh, uh, called Team of Rivals that I think is maybe the best history book ever written. And that's what, the, you know, they followed that for the television Lincoln or the movie Lincoln. Yeah. But it's not, and it was a good movie, but, uh, but the, book. Is, the book is amazing. Yeah. And it, and it tells you 
everything about how politics were then and still are now, and it's 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 really good. And for more fun, there's an author named Eric Lawson. And I got hooked on him quite a long time ago with a book called The Devil in the White City. Now, if you want to read something fascinating, he, he has this way of writing two things uh, back and forth, and eventually they come together. And that book's about the uh, 1893 uh, World Fair in Chicago, which was the most interesting one ever. It was the first time things were lit with electric light. And the whole story of that has always fascinated me. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I wanted to read that. But in his book, he's also talking about the worst mass uh, uh, serial murderer ever in the U.S. was at, in Chicago at the same time as the fair. Incredible. So it would, I, I said to myself, I'm just going to skip those because I don't want to read gory. And I'm just going to skip over and just read the parts about the fair. Well, I started the book and I couldn't stop. I never put it down. I read through the night and into the next day. Holy cow. Uh, once you started, it was uh, impossible to stop. Now, he's, he wrote two books after that that did the same thing. Uh, one is about Marconi and there's a murder going on in England, in London. and. Uh, there's an Alfred Hitchcock movie called uh, Rear Window that was developed because of the real story in his book in London. It's a fascinating thing. Now, he just wrote one of my favorite books ever. It just, it's only been out a year. It's called The Splendid and the Vile. And it's, it's a one-year period of Winston Churchill taking office back as prime minister and when he came back as prime minister, the British expeditionary force was already backed up at Dunkirk, having lost, and they were already bombing London. And they had, it was like the worst possible time. You could come decide back. to quit right yeah. then. And that's when he was put in place. And the book covers what he did for one year. That's how long the bombing of England lasted. It's fascinating. I, I, that would be my highest recommendation, maybe. Thank you, because I'm going to get it. Um, there are also uh, two other ladies besides Doris Kurtz Goodwin. Um, one of them, I don't know her last name right. It's Laura Hildebaum or something like that. She wrote Seabiscuit. Oh, yeah. And they made a movie yeah. of it. And... Um, she does this great job of telling you what was going on in the world while the story's going on. Uh, when they did the movie, they even did those little excerpts and, and they had David McCullough, my favorite historian, narrating uh, those little segments in the movie. But they're much broader in the book. And she's also the one that wrote that um, Un, the guy that got shot down and was in a Japanese prison, undeterred or oh, yeah. uh, uh, something like that. Uh, and then there's another author. I read that book and I can't even remember. There's another author, lady writer, that wrote three books that I loved. And my favorite is the first one. If you get that, um, it's called um, um, Destiny of the Republic. And it is about the assassination of James Garfield. Now, you might think you don't care anything about James Garfield and you don't care about that time period or anything. I'm telling you what, read that book because it's, it tells you everything that's going on, that what the, what the time period was. And the, the awful fact that had he been shot like that, 10 or 15 years later, he would have been back in the office the next morning. Wow. But we didn't understand uh, antiseptic. The French were so far ahead of us, and, and it was just fascinating. It was, it was a fascinating story. And then she wrote two more books. 
Um, one follows uh, Winston Churchill when he was in the Boer War and was captured by the Boers. And another one from um, um, Teddy Roosevelt as he was older. And he had been an adventurer, but now he was older than he should be out on an adventure. And he went on a thing in Brazil uh, up uh, an unknown river called River of Doubt. <laughs> Unbelievable. And it's, it's, you know, we ha we now have stores in Brazil, so I got you made me. I had a greater interest. Sure, I, I'm telling you too many books. I'm no, sorry. I think it's great. I, no, I like that. The reason I ask these questions because I, you know, you run out of uh, books to read, or that's interesting, and maybe other people that are listening feel the same way. And, and well, I, I would do want to mention one other thing. Yeah, absolutely, uh, we have a lady. Uh, uh, Pat Metter yeah. at the Historical Society that is an unbelievable writer. Now, her latest book is about, and I, I, I wish I could say the exact title, but it is about the, the town during Camp Sherman. It is absolute fabulous read. And where can you get that? The history uh, store? You can get it at the history store or at the uh, uh, Historical Society. Okay. Thank and you for, uh, of course, she has lots of other books. Yeah, and uh, John Grab had some good things, uh, but that book she wrote on the um, the the life in the city. Uh, you just think about there's a town of about fifteen thousand people, and they put thirty thousand soldiers on the outskirts. Yeah, and it changed. Um, uh, you know, they came into town sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> and things. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate your time. I, I didn't even get to hardly any of the questions I had, which is how I wanted to go. Um, I think we could do this again uh, and and have another hour because of all your your travels and your stories and, and what you're doing great for downtown. And uh, I want to thank you for doing everything that you, you have in downtown and what you're currently doing. And... Uh, everything that you're doing with Petland. Thank you. Listen, your your family and your partners are doing as much and more. You took on a couple of gollywonker buildings, <laughs> and I'm uh, grateful to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate this. And the work your wife has done in uh, highlighting local businesses yeah. has been wonderful. Yeah, only in Chilkathi. Pretty pretty neat. Yes. Uh, how, you, how she does it for free and doesn't ask for anything and – uh, it's kind of one of those things where when you walk into Petland and you're a salesman and they're they're treating you as uh, as a as a human. So yeah. But uh, well, thank you again. And thank uh, you. If, if you if you guys can hear that, that is lightning, <laughs> and we have a storm storm brewing. So well, thanks again. Bye bye.